I'm Ben, and I'm a second year science and arts student. So, and I'm in the Bible class today. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no impartiality. It shows no partiality. For all who have sinned under the law, without the law, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you, are, you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhors idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonour God by, speak, by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For the circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Thanks, Ben. Um, two warnings as we begin today. The first warning is this. Uh, Romans chapter 2 is an incredibly tough passage. It's an incredibly tough passage. Maybe you picked that up as we were reading just now. And uh, most Bible scholars actually have a tough time agreeing on what it means. 
Um, so much so that last night, after I'd finished my talk, I was lying there in bed, and I had a bit of a wobble, not physically, but metaphorically, of my understanding of the passage, because I felt, oh my goodness, have I got this right? Such is the passage. The second one is this. When we preach sometimes, when Bible teachers teach sometimes, sometimes we make statements without justifying it from the actual passage itself. And uh, I've been challenged to think about how I can more uh, readily show my work. Do you remember in maths class? When you uh, did a maths problem and you had the answer at the end, but your teacher always said, show your working. I'm going to try and show my working today. This is not an apology. It's just a warning that this passage is not easy. And secondly, I'm going to be showing you lots of working out. So we do need God's help um, in actually looking at it and keeping awake um, for this, this, this afternoon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for... Uh, this chance to gather, this chance to gather to hear you speak as uh, we open up your word. And we pray that you will speak to us today, challenge us and convict us by your spirit so that we may know the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus. And in his name we pray, Amen. That full? It's switched on. It's muted. Can you hear me now? Yes? Yes, good. Okay, good. Excellent. About four weeks ago now, um, a documentary called Leaving Neverland was released. Did anyone see that here? Yeah, a few of us. It was two personal accounts of how the now-dead King of Pot, Michael Jackson, has systematically sexually abused them over months or even years. And it's a fairly sordid documentary. I don't necessarily recommend you watch it. And even though it's still unknown now whether it's all true or not, Michael Jackson's songs are starting to be pulled from the airwaves, from radios in America and perhaps even here. And it's part of this thing called the so-called cancel culture. I don't know if you've heard about that coming up on the screen. Um, it's, the, uh, it's where um, musicians, actors and comedians, directors, chefs, novelists and journalists, in the past 18 months, many famous people have been cancelled by the gatekeepers of popular culture, fans and consumers who shift their tastes, and movie and TV studios and radio stations who shift their investments and endorsements. The cancel culture says they need to pay for what they've done. And it's interesting that popular culture holds a high moral ground, don't you think? When the corrupt politician gets put away, when the church minister is found guilty of child abuse, as has happened recently. Righteous indignation takes hold, doesn't it? Or on a more frivolous level, when the uh, referee gets it wrong in the game and we give them an earful, as uh, Willow and I were doing over text the other night as the dragons were being slayed. <laughs> when the dirty player gets suspended for foul play, you're deserving of justice. And it's all the more compounded by our social media as we make comment here and there. Imagine someone reading what Paul had to say in last week's passage. Chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I like what you're saying, Paul. Uh, especially the list in verse 30 to 31, all about slanderers and haters of God and adulterers and gossipers slanderers, 
the proud and the boastful, cancel them all. I hope they get what they deserve. Well, if we're like that, Paul is going to send us a warning. Beware. You might not like what Paul has to say. Paul is going to put self-righteous indignation in its proper place. The judge is going to become the judged by the judge. And that's our first point today. God will judge all people on Judgment Day according to works. Take a look. That's on your sheets, so keep your sheets open. Therefore, verse 1, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, who are these judges? Who's he addressing here? Is it some hypothetical person that Paul has in mind? It's commonly taken that way. Uh, Paul is some, perhaps someone Im imagining that he's arguing with someone here. But when you look at the book of Romans, I'm not sure it is. It doesn't seem as though it's hypothetical. Amongst the Roman Christians, we don't know if they're Christian or not, some of these, are those who stand in indignant judgment of others. Self-righteous judgment of others. We don't know who exactly they are. They could have been Jews, but we're not sure. He says, oh man, man who judges the other. Which could take into effect all people. In chapter 14, verse 3, it says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servants of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And there's great fault lines appearing. Divisions are beginning to show over food laws. Next slide. In chapter 16, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. There's a problem that needs address. Now, Paul is not saying that there's no such thing as judgment in the Christian life. Every day when you decide different actions, you are making judgments. In fact, Jesus says, don't go and give your pearls to pigs in Matthew 7. In other words, you're making a judgment about someone and who you actually approach to speak to. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, make judgments amongst yourselves. Don't bring it to the law courts outside. No, you, you make everyday judgments, and we are to make judgments. No, what Paul is addressing here is the hypocritical judge. The hypocritical judge. Those who know the truth, they know what God wants, and they somehow think that they are excused from God's justice. They see the speck in your eye. <laughs> but they fail to see the plank in their own. It might be they, that they're Jews, but uh, the reference to man could be anyone, as I said, who thinks they have the high moral ground. Now think about some wrong you've done, okay? Uh, but then, it's, or think about something done wrong to you, uh, but then you've gone and done the same thing. I remember when I was at theological college, yes, theological college, when we were studying the Bible all the time, and uh, uh, I remember coming into our mail room, and we collected our results and our papers back from all our assignments. 
And there was uh, a guy, and he, a friend of mine, and he took it and went, <gasps> and I went, what? And I looked at this paper, and it said A+. Plus. And he went, that, I'm, oh, I'm so happy. And he put on this false pretense of, he, he really was proud, I think, by what he was saying. But he put on this false pretense, so I said, this never happens to me, and all the rest of it. And I was thinking, oh, seems like a still humble, still boasting. And I suddenly get envious. And I put that fake smile on. And I went, oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, I got one of those last year. Verse <laughs> 4. Sorry, verse 3. 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourselves, that you'll escape? Answer? No. You're part of the problem too. The solution is not to point the finger harder, even more to distract from yourself. The solution is to go and take a close look in the mirror. The solution is to discover you are as guilty as the person you're condemning. I don't know, I, I call it the social media ivory tower. We sit there typing away, tapping away, don't we? Condemning, condemning, condemning. But no one can come back at us. No one can meet us face to face. The arrogance that has come through on social media, especially in the comments section. And Paul explains what's really happening when you are a hypocritical judge, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do you see the danger there? They carry on not taking any notice of the disaster ahead. I wonder if sometimes we think that God is indifferent to evil in our world. Don't you? Uh, when we don't see God put an end to evil and suffering and injustice, or at least restrain it in some way, aren't you tempted to think that evil doesn't matter? Aren't you tempted to think that God doesn't think evil matters? I, I do. And when I think like that, I think I've mistaken patience for indifference, verse 4. God is delaying judgment so we can turn back to him. God watches on in the world, but instead of indifference, he knows. He knows what we are all doing. Christ church. Child abuse. Domestic abuse. Sexual internet trolling abuse. It's easy to say how awful it's right that God punishes those people. But about me? The selfish desires of your hearts and mine. The greed. The envy. The failure to love the unlovable. Slander. Malice. Nah, those don't matter about me. No, he's going to bring about his righteous punishment on the day of judgment. One preacher I heard said this, he's patient but not infinitely patient. Slow to anger, but it doesn't mean he never gets angry. He's got a long fuse, but it does burn down. Don't presume on that patience, Paul says. 
God will not sweep evil under the carpet, including yours. He will not ignore your sin if you think you're any better. Repent. Turn back to God. The day of God's righteous judgment is coming. And when that day comes, he tells us how God will judge. Look at verse 6. Take a look. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So there's only two ways to live by which God is going to judge. Either as a Christian or someone who is not. Verse 7 and verse 10 describe the Christian, I think. Verse 8 and 9 describe someone who is not. It doesn't matter whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. God will judge you the same way and he will be fair. He hasn't told us how we can seek for glory and honour and immortality yet in the letter, but he will. See, up in the table, um, there's references to the idea of patience and endurance all the way through the book. There's ideas of glory and pursuing glory all the way through the book. There's the idea of honour being pursued all the way through the book. And in verse chapter 6, verse 20, when he talks about eternal life, it says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and then it ends eternal life. Friends, if you believe the gospel, if you say you're a Christian, there are some big mind shift, not mindset shifts that we need to make. Revolutions in the way of thinking. He hasn't got there yet in the letter. But values change, priorities shift. This is no intellectual kind of type of belief. This is actually a shift in everything. It's a life-changing faith in Christ the King that Paul is talking about. He's not saying you'll be saved by what you do. You don't earn eternal life. He's saying judgment will be between two groups of people. Those who know Jesus, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, and those who don't, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. One will disobey the truth, and the other will seek to live for the truth. Imperfectly, of course, but with endurance, try and seek how to live it out. And it's a challenge for the person who thinks they're the judge, isn't it? The righteous judge. And it's a challenge for us all. God will judge us with what we have done with the truth of the gospel. God will not excuse us because of who we think we are. Whether we grew up in a Christian household or not. Or whether we know the Bible really well. Or that we come from a good church. Or that we think we're moral. Uh, that we think we're not such a bad person. Or we think that we can condemn the guilty in society from our ivory social media tower. That God won't judge us according to social status, race, outward appearance, or cleverness. I read this article um, just today, this morning, of a developer in London who'd created the development of housing, and one half was private housing and the other half was social housing, and it was meant to be a, a shared playground for the children. So what did they do? They put a hedge right in the middle, so those in the social housing couldn't actually come across and play with the children from the private housing. It's awful to be judged, isn't it, by your social standing on your race or whatever it is. No, God is not like that. 
Human courts acquit the guilty and they condemn the innocent based on all sorts of wrong criteria, but not God. He does not show favoritism. He judges fairly according to how we have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so I want to ask you, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, well, God is giving you time to repent, to turn back to him. And have you done that yet? Have you turned your back on a life without God, without Jesus as king, to Jesus as king? Because those who do not repent and start a new life will not escape God's wrath. Now, from what you know about the Jews, what would they have been thinking about what Paul has just said? Now, this is a chance for you just to stand up and talk to the person next to you. If you want to stand up and just get that blood flowing? Go on, one minute. Go, go, have a chat. Thank you. Hey, you can, um, you can imagine you can imagine someone with a Jewish background. He might be sitting at the back of the room. He's amongst the Romans. Yeah, we don't know. Uh, he's got a Jewish background, but you can imagine him sitting in the corner, arms crossed, thinking, "What?" It's a bit like Rob when he hears my sermons. <laughs> <laughs> this would have made this would have made someone with a Jewish background his ears tingle. Gentiles can follow God. I get that Gentiles will be judged because they're unclean, but now you're saying they can please God and they can follow him? No, it's the Jews who are right with God, not the Gentiles. They're the ones who can please him. They're the ones who had, were chosen by God. They had the law. They had circumcision. They knew God. Surely this would have some advantage on Judgment Day, wouldn't it? And it's out of that context that Paul makes this second point today. Simply knowing the law won't count for anything. On Judgment Day, what counts is whether God's Spirit has changed your heart. Now, this is an involved argument. This is where it gets a bit chocolate mud cake-like, and we need to savour it and chew on it, as it were. Um, so, everyone ready? Uh, everyone, seatbelt fastened and tray tables up. Let's go. Verse twelve: For all who know, who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. What's he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about two groups of people. The Gentiles who don't have the law, and the Jews who do, by the very fact that they're Jew and Gentile. And Paul is saying both deserve condemnation because they both sin. Simply having the law or possessing the law makes no difference because it will be your judge for your wrongdoing. The law, in other words, is like your judge because you know what's right and wrong. Both are condemned. Both are under God's wrath. One has a judge, the other doesn't. And that's why he makes the statement in verse 13. Look at verse 13. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, to understand what he's saying, you need to understand this word justification. You might think it's Wednesday lunchtime, it's week four, all the assessments are piled up. Why are you teaching this? Because this is really important. God's justification is really God's law court declaration or the judgment seat, the judgment court on the last day, uh, that you are in the right, that you are righteous. That's God's declaration that you are in the right. 
Uh, and what Paul seems to be saying is, those who do the law will be justified. And some of us here are probably going, huh? The doers of the law will be justified. I thought, I thought, it's, I thought that you said it wasn't about doing the law that justifies you, that declares you in the right Paul. In fact, he says it in chapter 3, verse 20. It's there. Uh, no one who does the work of the law will be justified. And doesn't he say, in chapter 3, verse 23, that Jesus alone justifies us? Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus. So works won't justify us, but Jesus justifies us. It's because of Jesus and believing in him. We'll get to it in, uh, I don't know when, a number of weeks' time. He alone is our confidence for our right standing before God. He is. So what's going on here? Well, you're going to start to explain with the example of the Gentiles. Look at verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have a law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. I remember my friend from Singapore coming to Australia a number of years ago now, and he was uh, generally in Singapore, actually generally around the world, when someone asks you how they are, you really do think they're asking you how they are. But when he got here, everyone asked him, how are you? And he'd stop in the middle of the street to a stranger and go, that's nice, and then he'd stop to look, and then he was gone. <laughs> and he got really quite depressed about this because he thought, do they really care? But actually, the unwritten rule is, isn't it? It's good, just, good day, how are you? It's just another way of saying, well, not really saying, how are you? They're just saying, well, hello. The Gentiles, by being Gentiles, just by nature means they didn't have the law. But the Gentiles can obey God now without the written law. How? How can they do what God wants, even though they haven't been raised with it? Well, verse 15 says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. What's he talking about? Law is written on their hearts. Now, I don't think he's talking about all Gentiles here, although he could be. I actually think he's talking about Gentile Christians. There's one place in the New Testament where it talks about the spirit, the writs of writing on the heart. And in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, both allude to the idea that it's about God's people. That God takes God's law and writes it on their heart by spirit. So these Gentiles who he's talking here in verse 14 are able to do the law because I think they are Christians. They have the spirit of God in them. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that the Spirit of God is written on their heart? Well, in the book of uh, Romans, it's a bit of a complicated diagram, and if you want to take a picture, you can actually go and uh, have a look. Think about the gospel hope. He's already said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that all who believe in him. But the question comes, in Romans, how do they believe in him? Well, um, one of the elements that people don't often see is because it's the Spirit is at work. The Spirit is pouring out the love of God, that is the Gospel, into the hearts of the, his people. And so they can believe because the Gospel has been poured out. But not just that, because he's going to go on and say, the Gospel hope in us by the Spirit produces endurance in good works. You see, from beginning to end it is by faith, but from beginning to end it's God's work by the Spirit. The Jew would have been asking, why is it that... Uh, we're judged uh, 
Answer, because the law doesn't justify you. Judgment is by works. They would have been asking the question, how does the Gentile please God without the law? Answer, the Spirit of God is at work. And notice how he compares the Gentile with the Jew. Verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, you see, what do they have? The written law. How do they think about the law? We know the truth. We boast in God. But how do they act? Look at verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who have bore idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonour God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You see, merely possessing the written law does not make you obedient to God. And he quotes from, I think it's probably Ezekiel or Isaiah, where the context is one of judgment. Israel had been judged because they haven't obeyed the law. The law does not, having the law doesn't make you more obedient. No, no. To be a true Jew, a faithful Jew, it takes more than the law. It takes more than mere circumcision, a mere cutting of the skin. Verse 26, 28, sorry. For no one is a Jew is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So what he's saying is a Jew pleases God when he obeys with a heart cut by the spirit. Now last week you heard that when we decided to reject God and turn away from him, our thinking becomes futile and our hearts are darkened. That is, we don't want to know God's truth, nor can we accept it. But what the Spirit does, and do you remember I used the illustration of perhaps the motherboard? I don't know how good that was. Perhaps it's like a home renovation, if you like those home renovation shows. Actually, what the Spirit is doing is coming inside and he's cutting away all that stuff, as it were, your inner being, to actually take away the barrier to enable you to hear God's words. See, with just the written code, you're not going to please God. You can't please God unless your heart has been cut by the Spirit. You need a heart changed by God before you can stand right with him. Calvin says... Paul shows the Spirit to be the inner teacher by whose effort the promise of salvation penetrates into our minds. A promise that would otherwise only strike the air or beat upon the brown. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying you need a heart changed by God before you can stand right with him. You need a heart that has been cut by the guilt of your sin. You need a heart cut by the Spirit that Jesus Christ is Lord and Saviour and bring about a faith in him. And with that conviction, our hearts desire to honour and please him by the Spirit. And I think that fits much better with the flow of chapter 2 as a whole. If you judge one another, he's saying to these judges, if you think you know the truth, or you think you're somehow better because you know the law, or that you're somehow more acceptable to God, well, you have missed the point. It's a warning to the self-righteous judge who knows the truth. And I think it might be a danger for us. <coughs> I know it's been heavy, 
but actually it's been necessary. And if you've gone to sleep, switch on now. Two years ago, we changed our name to the Uni Bible Group. The Bible is the centre of our lives and all that we do here. How do we proclaim Christ at university? By opening up the Bible. We open up the Bible today. We open the Bible in our one-to-ones, at team, in faculty groups, and it's the centre for us, and quite rightly too, because that's how God speaks through his words. People who say, it's too intellectual, have missed the point. We need to sit down and understand God's word the best we can. We need to work hard at understanding it, like we have done today, but we need to be very careful. If reading and studying the Bible, and even understanding what it's saying, somehow digs up some earthly pride, if it sound theology makes us think we're better than the rest, if it makes us think we somehow deserve something better from God, we're on thin ice. If you think, I know the Bible, but it hasn't really penetrated to your core to live life newly at your heart, well, you know what Paul is saying? Has it taken root deep down? Does the word change your affections? Does it change your desires? Does the word change you to honour Jesus in the small decisions in life and the big decisions? Jesus said, you must be born again. Having faith is not just some intellectual assent or sound theology. It's a whole new life, lived for Jesus, led by God's Spirit. We are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, as we shall see, but we have much to learn about what that faith looks like in action. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your gift um, of speaking to us through your word, through the Bible, and through your Son, as we uh, see him there. And we thank you for the challenge today. Father, we can't uh, think, just because we know what your word says, that uh, we stand right with you. Well, we know, Father, it will take an action of you to convict us of sin, and of the Lord Jesus and the life that he now wants us to live. We pray, Father, that you'd help us think through um, what you say today, that we might repent and believe your gospel, and that uh, we might live rightly in newness of life through uh, the work of your Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> Hello, I'm Emily Clark, and I'm studying primary ed, um, and I'm going to pray, which is talking to God, which is really cool, um, so please join with me. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for the freedom you've given us to meet on campus and study your word together. Thank you that you've revealed yourself through the Bible. Please make us excited and passionate about reading the Bible to get to know you and how we should be living for you. Thanks for the great time many of us had on board on the weekend studying Hebrews together, meeting new friends, and deepening existing relationships. Help us to remember that we need to stay anchored to Jesus Christ as Lord. 
We also pray for our upcoming Easter mission. Please help us to be bold and loving as we share the good news about you at Easter time with both our friends and strangers at uni. Lord, we praise you that you save people across the world and Australia. And we thank you that there are many uni Christian groups who meet like us across Australia and the world. We thank you for the Evangelical Christian Union that meets on the Cumberland campus of Sydney Uni. Thank you for their kick-on conference where students could think about the heart of mission together. And thank you for their new students that have joined this year. Finally, Father, we also pray for people groups across the world who don't know you. We pray that you'll be sending people to those who have never heard about Jesus to tell them how good you are and how much we need you. Lord, we thank you that we can talk to you because of Jesus. Amen. Amen.